Oh, hello. Yes, we do keep thought forms on our staff, but honestly it's a position we're reconsidering, and I appreciate your feedback. Our guests who hail from Indigo may have opinions based on moral or philosophical grounds, but visitors from the Grey are divided based on perceived origin timeline? Midstream arrivals don't seem concerned, because they view thought forms as something they called bots back home. But late-stream shadow folk, the ones who keep vague memories of a singularity, are either indignant or terrified at their presence. Yes, I think you've made up my mind. I'll make arrangements. Oh, now what to do about that tulpa? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to carry on, so what will you be having tonight? Welcome to episode 12 of The Secret Cellar. I can't tell you how relieved I am to be back in the realm of integers. As you would rationally expect, we'll be continuing on from here to episode 14 when the next moon arrives. Tonight will be a lot of fun for me, because I get to introduce you to two friends of mine, who are also colleagues on a rather ambitious project I've been working on for almost four years. I was hired as art director and UX designer for an indie video game called Botland, you can read more at its website, bot.land, and it's finally nearing daylight. So, tonight, you'll hear from Adam Damiano, who not only created the game, but has acted as lead developer throughout, and Kendra Inohosa, just one of the many talented illustrators on the game, but one whose hand and eye had a tremendous impact on the game's final look and feel. The game's in beta. It still has rough edges at the moment, but it's functioning, and it's fun. I'm immensely proud of it and honored to have been a part. Oh, you'll also hear Ian Smith's name mentioned as an early contributor. That is in fact Ian from episode one. Also, if you're interested in Twitch as a medium, do revisit the chat with Jim Ryan from episode 12 and 7 eighths. Now, hark, Vizla's call. Adam Damiano, welcome to The Secret Cellar. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you. Uh, the most important question I have for you is, uh, what is it that you're drinking tonight? I'm drinking water, which I asked for your permission beforehand to report on. <laughs> Just plain old boring water. Water is not boring at all. It's essential to life. But you are the first Secret Cellar customer who has approached the bar and just requested water. But I fully appreciate it. Why, uh, why, why do you drink water a lot? Yes, almost exclusively. What are you drinking, Jason? <laughs> I can't tell if I'm excited or embarrassed about this, but I'm drinking uh, orange vanilla Coke, which is this product that's on the market right now. And it's interesting to me for a couple reasons, not the least of which it's in an orange can. Like there are spots of Coca-Cola red, but it's fascinating to me that Coke has a Coke that is not red, which is like why I bought it in the first place. You know, FCC rules say that you have to disclose sponsorships. <laughs> if it turns out that Coke is sponsoring this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep that on the down low. They're not, in fact. Uh, is, is, water, is water sponsoring your end of this conversation? Water is, yes, actually. There's a large percentage of my body and the planet that's composed of it. So they're omnipresent. It's really, <laughs> it's really, you can't escape them. It's true. How much water do you drink in a day? Quite a lot, actually. This bottle holds 75 ounces, which I wish I could convert to liters quickly, but I can't. That's that's something like, I don't know, nine hours worth of water. 
I'm actually very, I'm very pleased and impressed with your water diligence because I know I should drink more water. And of course, I don't evidence by the orange vanilla Coke sitting in front of me. But yeah, that's, that's very good and refreshing. Well, that's got some water content. You could probably just drink 100 Cokes every day. (laughs) The caffeine doesn't kill you. (laughs) Definitely cause other problems. (laughs) Yes. So uh, you are the I don't. It's hard to even introduce you. You you have a lot to do with a thing called Botland. Do you want to first of all just tell me a bit about what Botland is, and then we'll get into where it came from and why it exists. Sure. So Botland is an online strategy game with a focus on automation. It is free. It's playable now. There will be apps in the next probably three weeks or so. And in the game, you make bots. You can create scripts for those bots, and then they'll do battle completely according to those scripts. So it's unlike maybe typical strategy games where you would have a keyboard and mouse or a controller and you tell your bots to fire missiles or to move to that position. Instead, you're going to say what they'll do in those situations and then they'll just do them when those situations come up. So zero twitchiness, a little more strategy and foresight involved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No real dexterity or real-time component, so to speak. Very cool. But it is it is real-time only in the sense that it is, uh, it is online and against other people playing live constantly, yes. Right, but those people aren't present for the match exactly. Only the attacker is present, and the defender will just get a replay in their battle log later. Very, very cool. And the reason that I have you here is because you made this thing, like, like almost... I mean, there were other people involved, including me, but you almost <laughs> exclusively generated the idea, brought this thing to life and are about to launch it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So actually, I looked up some dates in preparation for this podcast and I found out that on October 17th, 2010 (laughs) is when I made botland.py, which was a Python file for the original prototype of it. And then if you fast forward about, well, five years, I guess, you get to the point where I actually really started prototyping the current iteration of the game. Wow. So that was roughly four years ago, back in 2015. <laughs> that is, I did not know that about the the 2010 origins of this yeah. thing. That's that's pretty darn cool. It looks really bad, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> it's gone a long way. <laughs> I believe that. Well, before we go any further, I will just say, you know, if, if any of what we are about to talk about sounds interesting to anybody, go to play.bot.land and you can play a playable beta currently and really dig in and see exactly what we're talking about. So yeah, you approached me a few years ago uh, through a mutual friend and said, hey, there's, you know, there's this thing I'm working on and you needed some design and some art direction and I can touch on all that stuff. But the really interesting thing is you had this concept and you had made a little prototype. And what happened between the time you made a prototype and showed it around at your office (laughs) and now? (laughs) It started where I was still at my last job and I was working with Ian. Back then, what we were trying to do is design a game for the office, essentially. People who could play during a coffee break or when they had some downtime. And so it was all engineered around that. And then after about a year, Ian had some time constraints, couldn't continue with Extonomous anymore. And it was right around that time that I think we realized that our productized prototype was not a very fun prototype. I should back up a step here and mention that I had started streaming the development of all of this on Twitch. So there were a lot of people who were very thoroughly plugged into this process and could try out the alpha, the beta, and continue to see the development progress as it unfolded. Through those people, I found out that, yes, the game is not quite as fun as we thought. Back then, it was a real-time game. And my general conclusion is that the kind of automation that Botland has you do is not fun in a real-time setting. 
because you need to get feedback from what your automation did. But automation generally needs a lot of trials for you to get accurate feedback from it. So you kind of had this tug of war between checking out your automation and responding to what the opponent did that just didn't result in a really good flow. So it changed to an asynchronous multiplayer where there's this concept of attackers and defenders and the attacker is present to the match. They're trying to destroy the defender's base and then the defender will log in later and see what happened and maybe evolve their base. And both players are playing the same sort of style throughout their time in botland. Once we had tried that out, we got some feedback that, okay, yes, this is working. It seems to have some promise. It's always a little bit hard to tell because when you're prototyping something, you're going very quickly. And so you don't know, would this be more fun if it had more polish, better graphics, audio, better UI, or do we know enough now to pursue that? So we decided to go forward and that's kind of where we are today. That design hasn't really changed too much since then. And that was roughly two years ago, I think, that that redesign had happened. Very cool. And you you made this a full-time thing. You quit your job and then started making Botland. Yeah, the real impetus behind me quitting my job was that it had been about a year that I was there and I decided I'm no longer learning anything. The reason I'd gotten that job in particular because I wanted my foot in the gaming industry door. So after about a year when I felt like, okay, this is no longer advancing that position, I talked to my wife and I said, what should I do? <laughs> should I find a new job? And she said, well, you've been working on this prototype for Botland for the last seven months or so. Why don't you try to productize that? And that's when I talked to Ian. That's when I talked to my boss. I tried to figure out what should I do, what's best. And I ended up quitting. <laughs> you had a unique process involving Twitch, which I think is just a really interesting use of the medium. And I'd love to hear a bit about that. That was pure luck. I used to watch Twitch on my lunch break at work. And I'd normally watch things like Hearthstone or StarCraft. Well, it turned out that one of those streamers that I watched did game development on the side and happened to be doing it on Twitch. And that had never crossed my mind before. I did not know people would want to watch development. I didn't know that they streamed development. And I thought, well, I'll try it. I went in with two goals. One was accountability to make sure that I wasn't playing those same games myself while I had quit my job and was working from home. <laughs> and two was marketing. I needed to build a community that would then hopefully turn into the Botland community. And I think they were both ringing successes. I was very on track for all of that time. And quite a community has now built up around Botland. So yeah, if you are interested in any of this, you can go back and see uh, <laughs> archived Twitch streams and or occasional sort of YouTube video wrap ups of Adam's development through the whole thing. I will say a thing that impresses me incredibly. I am a good thinker, but I'm a pretty good one track thinker. You're a very good multi track thinker and watching the way in which you're able to think problem solve talk out loud through the things that you're working through be developing actively at the same time and then sort of managing comments questions and engaging in the community is pretty spectacular. And uh, I would not be able to do my work while Twitch streaming. But I think it's fascinating that you could. And I think just from feedback you've gotten, what is it that the viewers of your Twitch stream over the last few years have gotten out of it? What do they find in that interaction? Just first of all, thank you for the, the compliment. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the time most of you hear this, probably if it's still 2019, chances are I'm still streaming the development of this although the schedule is probably to be determined since we're so close to launch at this point. So you, you could actually watch this. But what Jason said is totally true. There are archives. So to actually answer the question posed, which is what are viewers getting out of this? I took a poll on what the viewers are getting out of this because I always wondered, why are you watching? <laughs> and in order to take this poll, I needed to ask them first, okay, what are some of the reasons so that I could have voting options? 
And what it turned out to be, most people are watching for the process. And then some people, so that was, I think, the number one reason is the process of what is it like to code? I think the second reason was me, which is they are interested in me or kind of how I conduct things. And the third one, I think, was Botland. So that kind of makes sense. This is a Twitch stream. So what attracted people there is the development. And then what kept them there might be me. And then what also is interesting them is the product that I'm making. Then other reasons that were on that list were they wanted some background noise. I type pretty loudly on my keyboard. And for some people, that adds to the effect. (laughs) And one of the other ones, which surprisingly was pretty low, was the community itself. Some people go into a Twitch stream to talk to the other people who are chatting there. But I don't find that that's very common in my stream. That's interesting. But there is a sense just from the times I've hung out in there a bit where it's not that people are talking directly to each other, but everyone is, you know, they're playing off each other as they're interacting with your conversations and with your conversation with them. Yeah, for sure. I've had just a little bit of experience with tabletop role playing on Twitch surrounding Invisible Sun, of course, Adam. Yes. Um, (laughs) You might have to give your impressions of, uh, of my involvement in that in a moment. But it's fascinating to me in a similar way that people are going about their lives. And, you know, I think often when people are watching Twitch, it's not like they're sitting and only watching Twitch. They're like carrying on their lives, but they have it going on on the side or in the background. And in the middle of that, you get this strange sort of modern community vibe from like engaging in a story together. In jokes appear over time and people are bouncing back and forth things that have happened and bringing them up. And it really is an an oddly satisfying way to gather with people around a common interest and sort of connect with them. It's just fascinating to me, the whole thing really interesting. I agree. It's fascinating to me too. And this is a very modern thing. I remember in 2010, when I was starting to work on this game, that Skype had just sometime around then introduced screen sharing. And I thought, oh my God, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I screen shared (laughs) with a friend of mine who was just coincidentally also developing whatever he was doing. And I thought back, that's kind of my introduction to streaming. That's the first time I'd ever done something like that. And yeah, before, I don't remember that ever being a thing before probably, I don't know, 2007, let's say. I know there was screen sharing software for the Mm -hmm. sake of enterprises, but I'd never done that with a friend of mine before that day in 2010. Sure. And who would have thought that by a decade hence that people would be... (laughs) Just sort of living on Twitch. (laughs) Yeah. Streaming their screen to like the masses as entertainment while they work. Have you seen The Truman Show, the movie? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I would not want to spoil this for anybody. And I don't know how to say the relevance of this for those who haven't seen it. So let's just say there are striking similarities to that. <laughs> yeah, it really it really is. Uh, it would be fascinating now, given everything happening in the world, to go back and uh, watch that again. I should do that. Oh, yeah. Um, tell me a bit more about automation. Like There are other games and products that have done this, but it's not as common. And I'm really curious about your long-standing interest in automation as a form of interaction and kind of UI and entertainment? So for me, what started the interest in automation around games actually came from Diablo 2. Nice. <laughs> now, for those of you who are unaware, Diablo 2 is an action RPG. It's not the kind of thing you think about for automation. And this game was wildly popular at one point. And as it got more popular, people started writing bots. Well, Diablo is not a game that was intended to have bots. So these people who had it had a great advantage over everybody else. They would leave their bots online overnight. They would collect a bunch of items. They'd sell that for real money. They'd pull in hundreds of dollars every month just by running the game. And and they'd also get this powerful gear for themselves and get to higher levels through that. And so this was an unfair advantage given that it was against the terms of service to do this. So as a regular player, you wouldn't risk this. 
and I thought, what if there was a game where that was just the gameplay? That's what you had to do. <laughs> and that's, that's what sparked Botland. But then you need to answer the question of, well, what is the automation accomplishing? So in some games, some of you might have played Factorio, it is also the purpose of the game. But what it's accomplishing is it's taking all your manual actions and scaling them out to a ridiculous extent. There's no way you could possibly click this many things at once, transfer items so quickly. And that is one way that you'd want automation for lots of little actions that you couldn't perform so quickly as a human. And the second reason is kind of the reason where Botlane comes in. It's for long running actions that you could do yourself, but that are typically tedious or that you could do while you're offline, let's say. So in Botland, I mentioned this concept of you can act as a defender. When you set up your automation, you sort of just push it out to the world, almost like a Super Mario Maker level. And then other people can tackle it as they choose and you come back and you see the results of it. And it feels good to have that in the game as opposed to having to be online so much and grind through this content yourself. So get crunchy for a bit and tell everyone a little bit about practically really in the play of Botland, like what does it mean to be an attacker who is evaluating your opponent's defense and then kind of figuring out how you know to put together a strategy to automate that attack and then really what that looks like in, in detail. All right, get crunchy. Got it. So <laughs> in Botland, we did not want to remove that human element of, of playing because if you did literally just set up a bot and then come back, let's say two years later and thought, oh, cool, I got to level 10 in whatever game I'm playing, that's not very exciting. So what an attacker does in the game is first they'll evaluate what strategy should I even go with on a high level. So they'll see that the opponent has something like a lot of close range, powerful bots, and they'll think, you know, it'd be really helpful is if I just skirted around the outside of the arena and shot at them from long range, maybe that'll work. So that's the attacker's first step coming up with that high level strategy. After that, they've got to come up with how do they get their bots to do this? And you don't have to be a programmer to play the game. You could just use the default AI and never touch the scripting aspect if you wanted to. But a lot of people do want to get into that nitty gritty. And that's where you can control every single turn that takes place in this game. And you do that either through an interface of visual programming. There's a library called Blockly. So if you've ever heard of Scratch, it's very similar to that. And then there's a subset of JavaScript. So if you actually do know how to code, you could use this. And you'll do things like, if I can see an enemy, move closer to it. If there's an enemy right next to me, maybe use your melee weapon. If there's nothing around me, maybe I want to repair myself. So those are the kinds of decisions you're telling your bots to do, combined with your high-level strategy of that whole, if they had a lot of close-range bots, maybe you want long-range weapons. You merge those two things into one complete strategy and then kick off the game. So uh, you mentioned this, but I'm just going to go back and harp on it to make sure it's really clear. You can get incredibly nerdy and into the weeds with this game, but um, because Blockly is in place, that kind of visual programming language, um, you don't need to be a programmer or have a background in programming. You can think logically and sit down and evaluate what's going on and kind of learn over time and piece together code in this kind of visual sense and put together really good strategies, even if you don't fancy yourself a programmer. So I think it would be easy for this game to appear or to sound daunting. It really isn't or doesn't need to be unless you want to get under the hood and start doing some really crazy stuff. So I would encourage anyone for whom this sounds remotely interesting to check it out. Yeah, that's exactly right. And for those who are interested, as Jason mentioned, it is free. I think I mentioned that too, actually. And also, I just implemented as of about a month ago, guest accounts. So if you sign up with a guest account, I have none of your information. You're not on the hook for anything. You can get started in probably like six seconds if you open this up on your phone, bot.land right now, and just see if you like it. 
And it's not for everyone. I will say that this does not have the mass appeal of something like Mario or Zelda. <laughs> it is for sure a niche game and it's a strategy game too. So let me talk a little bit about leveling through strategy. Like you've had a good amount of time watching both new players and just kind of friends that have been testing this and working with it. And then some players who are very good at the game at this point and have been playing for quite a long time as you've been working on it. What do you see as kind of the main differences between some of the really high level players in terms of how they approach the game versus me who just sort of gets in and pokes at it from a strategy perspective? What's funny to me about this is that, you know, honestly, Botland at its core is kind of a casual game, but it's wrapped in such a high learning curve shell that it's hard to pierce for some players, I think. They hear about the scripting and it is daunting to them. But once you've written all your scripts, you've got those high level strategies. At that point, you're just plunking down bots and saying, hey, I think this will work. You play it out. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. You see your rating go up or drop. And it, it's fun from that perspective, but at that point, it gets very casual almost. Interesting. So when new players approach this, they do sort of ignore the scripting, which is what I wanted them to do. I want them to just start and just get used to what's the game like, how do you play it? And then the players who do really well have this tinkerer mindset to them where they think, how can I do the best possible thing in all scenarios? And they might write specific strategies for them, or they might try to, as a defender, more specifically, you sort of have to write a general purpose strategy since anyone can attack you. So there's one player out there who has an incredibly high win ratio. And in the very rare case where they get defeated, they will go in and say, okay, how do I make my defense bulletproof now? How do I stop that in addition to all of these other strategies that I have to stop? (laughs) And it's really impressive. I never expected this sort of thing when I set out to make the game. So that person has ended up with this kind of Uber script, very much like your figure it out for me generalized AI, but much more advanced and specialized for the particular types of attacks they've encountered over time. Yeah, exactly. And so people listening may say, well, wait a second, if there's this Uber script, doesn't that mean that you could just use this? And once you've achieved that, you win the game, essentially. And I would say that at that point, I would have failed as a game designer. This person has a high win ratio because there aren't a whole lot of players in the game. But once there are new strategies, once I have more content, if there's ever a dominant strategy that you can't possibly beat, then it's a design flaw for sure. So I think this player just happens to be very good right now. And there's not a ton of content yet, but eventually that'll be addressed. There's this interesting like rising tide lifts all boats things, right? Because you can imagine once the community is larger and active and holes are always being poked in the best strategies. Some of those strategies might get observed on Twitch or shared around or whatever. But then at that point, the defender needs to get better and then the attackers need to get better. I mean, (laughs) it seems broadly as though the very best players of Botland by a few years from now will be much better than the best players that exist at the moment. And that just will continue, which, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. And I love that aspect of games too. And I think that this is almost, it's got a lot of corollaries to just security. You have people out there who write security software yes. and then people who poke holes in that. And then the software needs to get better and the attackers need to get better. It's very similar in botlane. I'm proud to tell you tonight about the sponsor for this episode and for the entire forthcoming season two of Secret Seller, Gamers Giving. Gamers Giving is a charity by gamers for gamers. It exists both online and out here in the real world as an organization who reaches out to help gamers in need or who would otherwise be excluded from the joy we all know in gaming together. If you live in the Denver metro area, you can find them at conventions and events all over the city or find them online at facebook.com slash gamersgiving. 
and find out how you can share in the joy of giving and helping others in this crazy, vibrant community of which we are all a part. Thank you so much to Gamers Giving for their ongoing support and making this podcast possible. Separate from the automation and the actual development and the actual gameplay, there's this very basic theme. You're attempting to attack the other player's CPU or defend it, but that ended up trickling down and kind of affecting the whole aesthetic of the game, which obviously includes, you know, the art direction, which is part of what I was working on, the music, which you wrote. When you think about Botland as an entire product, what are the key things in your mind that kind of got it to where it has ended up now? That is a very tough question, actually. So going back in the history to 2015, that's when Ian was still working for Exonymous. And and Ian was mostly sort of the liaison between myself and you, Jason. And and for those, I don't remember if this was explicitly made clear, but Jason, yes, was the art lead, the UX designer, had a very large role in what Botland looks like today. And Ian helped guide those conversations too. And so one of the big things that led to where we are is the budget. I funded all of this out of pocket, which means I'm not, I'm not made of money. So <laughs> we had to make certain trade-offs in art for example, the sprites in Botland, they either face left or right. There is no up or down or diagonal movement. And if this were something like a Super Nintendo game where you control one main character, you'd say, well, we should spend more of our budget on the main player's sprites. But since there are so many different sprites in this game, since there are so many other aspects that we needed to account for with the budget, we did have to make a trade-off. And so the game looks like how it does because of that. It sounds like how it does because I was shocked at how expensive music can be for games. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I'll compose it myself. And then I won't have to spend the thousands of dollars to get licensed, even let's say 20 minutes of music. It's quite expensive. And so these are the kinds of things that they're decisions that went into the aesthetics of the game, but I don't think they hurt too much from a mobile perspective. However, I do think there are many PC gamers who try this out in their browser and they say, why isn't this 3D? Why does this not look like the other free-to-play games that I've tried out? And yeah, I suppose this is the the venue for me to clarify all of that. But most people won't hear about, oh, well, there's a budget. It was from one guy's savings. It was from only four years of development work. Sure. It's one thing to be a consumer of games or any kind of product. And then it's another to be kind of involved in the production and really (laughs) seeing what goes on behind the scenes. But it's always fascinating to me the ways in which constraints and limitations end up affecting the design of a thing is just always, I mean, that's what design is, right? Is like pushing the limits of what you can within the constraints and limitations that are put upon you. And, you know, I know on the art direction side, down to the art style, you know, we have this kind of cartoonish art style. Part of that had to do with you know, sort of over-exaggerated features and simplified heavy lines. You're playing this game on an arena grid, which you can zoom in very close and you can see artwork, for instance, in the store when you're purchasing it and you want like nice quality artwork there. But you also have to be able to recognize the parts and the bots that you make out of them, even when they're very tiny and you're zoomed out really far. So in some ways, actually, the lack of a lot of extraneous detail helps with that. But it also had to do with production speed and how much work we could get done within the budget. I had about half a dozen artists over the course of the project that were working for me on the illustration and the animation. And it was a style that we knew we could be pretty nimble with and could kind of cover ground pretty quickly. And But at the beginning, we were experimenting with several, several different kind of styles and looking at artwork from other games and figuring out what would work. But uh I'm pretty happy with with the end result. And it's 
it's nice too, because I know some of the very high level initial art direction goals that you and I had talked about, Adam, were we wanted this world to feel inclusive and friendly. And it, it is a game about battle, but we didn't want it to feel violent. But we did want people to be able to customize their bots and to be able to like make a really cute bot if they wanted or a really mean looking bot to customize the colors. And all of those were factors that went into what ended up being the way that we produced the artwork. And so I think it was successful on those fronts. Yeah, and I agree completely. I think it was successful. I think you and the artist did a fantastic job. I have no visual artistic skills whatsoever. So I'm impressed when I look at this, but <laughs> I had very little to do with it other than the coding. And again, I sort of passed the same along. I was casting vision, but I'm so grateful for the artists. Um, I won't mention all of them here, but I will. Uh, Kendra Hinoosa, um, some of you may know because if you were watching Truth Bleeds at Twilight, she did the artwork for the character art there. Ian, that we've just been talking about, uh, was also involved with that project and appears on episode one of this show talking about Invisible Sun. So those are some references familiar. I will also mention uh, Ryan Levin, who really took charge of the animation. And I think you know, in the end, it was Kendra and Ryan who really sort of carried the thing home and and did the bulk of the work in the sort of the final stages of the project and really sort of made it end up looking and feeling how it did. And I'm just really, really grateful for their work. So I'll put their names and portfolios and stuff in the show notes. And if you need illustration, you should definitely go find them. I'll put all the other artists. They were all great. Yeah, they did great work. And I we keep talking about this in the past tense of they've done great work for Botland. But I mean, I'd love if Botland is successful enough to be able to sustain itself and me, then I would love to continue to hire them for this work. I want to add more bots into the game, more <laughs> weapons, more features, more modes, everything. And it's just a matter of can I? Yeah, for sure. Talk a little bit about the business side of this thing. It is freemium, so it's free to play and then you can pay for some stuff. But I know you were intentional from the beginning to not want this to be like that super sketchy game that optimizes for profit at the cost of people's souls. Uh, so tell me a bit about where you landed and what money, actual money, actual actually purchases you here. So there were two tenets that I wanted to abide by when it came to monetization. One was that you should not have to pay to win. There is a large push against these kinds of games, but also I just don't like them to begin with. Not everything I do is purely motivated by business. Of course, I want to be able to sleep at the end of the day <laughs> and making these decisions in a certain way lets me do that. So that was number one, no pay to win. Number two was that you should be able to get any item in the game by just playing it. And I think with some exceptions. So let's say there was a one time like participate in this tournament and get a golden bot and it's just aesthetic. I'm okay with that, but I'm not okay with something like well, this item's just more powerful and sorry, you've got to spend real money to get it. And it, it does play into number one. So what we ended up with is this, and this is currently the model, this could change. There are what are called salvage packs in the game. They contain three cosmetic items, enough to form one bot. They're formed of a head, a torso, and a foot piece. So each salvage pack has one of each of those pieces and that's it. So all you get from salvage packs are cosmetic items and that's the only thing you can buy with real life money. So you're going to be giving this a go this year. You're, are you still looking at May as a launch date for this? I, I honestly don't know. One of the things I tried to do is give myself a three-month marketing runway to figure out how effective is this game for YouTubers, for Twitch streamers, for just people playing it. 
So there are some things in the works that unfortunately I can't share here because they're not totally public yet. But Ooh. let's just say the marketing is moving along sure. and that if the game isn't proving to be profitable by the end of 2019, that it will come to a close. I mean, I, I am married. I do have commitments. I I need to make money at some point. <laughs> sure. For the last like three and a half years, it's been <laughs> less than minimum wage on Twitch. Not that I'm complaining. It's just that's that can't fly for the rest of my life. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. So for anyone who is intrigued by this and wants to dig around a bit before it becomes world famous, <laughs> what can people, how can people be involved and supportive now uh, until the day that it launches as an official public product and they can start buying salvage packs? So that's an excellent question. There are a couple of things that are very easy to do that people can help with. One is honestly just playing the game. Because if you like the game and you continue to play it, it doesn't matter if you don't ever spend money. You're another player in the game. I really value that. And also other people can play against you and you'll get to see these features as I add them. The second one that would be really helpful if anyone does is whenever there's any chance on social media, and I'm not saying to inject this like, what's that joke? How do you know if someone does CrossFit? You don't have to ask them. They'll, they'll tell you. <laughs> I, I'm not talking about that. Don't go up to random people and just say, hey, Botland, you should go play it. But if someone's talking on Reddit, let's say about, hey, have you found any good free online games? That's the perfect opportunity to say, yep, this is this is the right context for it. I will mention Botland. I'll do so in a nice way. Those things go a long way because I'm having a pretty hard time reaching out to the rest of the world about Botland right now. And it's pretty important for the future of the game and for myself too. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. And I don't know, I'm so excited to see where this is all going to go in the next few months and what happens. It's a distinct product from other kinds of things I've played. And the best compliment I can give it, which is thoroughly honest, is that, of course, I've been poking at it, you know, during its whole development. <laughs> but the other day, I was sitting down to sort of do some some work on it, some UI review and taking some notes for you about some things. And uh, in the middle of my work, I got distracted and I started playing and like an hour went away and I realized that I was no longer working and I was just <laughs> sitting and playing the game. That is pretty rad because if it's fun for someone who's been staring at it in some form for a few years as it's all come together. Uh, yeah, that's that's great to hear. And I, I really got to say thank you for two major things here, Jason. One, having me on the show. And two, for all the incredible work you've put in. Really, I they say no man is an island. When you're making games, I think you can do these sort of smaller project games, let's say making Pong, making Tetris, and totally do it on your own and release it. But Almost any game you've ever seen that was popular that took longer than a couple of years, even if it was just one developer, it's not like it was just that person. They had a lot of support. They had other people maybe helping them out, giving them advice. And in this case, it was more than that. It was actual work that was done too. But Jason also helped support me. And so just huge shout out to you. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show with my boring water. <laughs> I appreciate your boring. Uh, by, by now, halfway down this can of orange vanilla Coke, I'm desperately wishing I had some water in front of me. I'll be honest. It is, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's deadly. Uh, <laughs> I think, I, I think to close, um, we mentioned, you know, bot.land, the main website, what else either on Twitter or elsewhere should people find you more about your work, more about the project. So right now, bot.land has those links. And the only other thing I would say is if you wanted to watch on Twitch as all of this unfolds and kind of stay in the loop, my username on there is Adam13531. If you probably just search botland Twitch in Google or something, you'd probably find it that way too. 
And then to close really for reals, uh, I think it would be uh, good if you tell everyone about <laughs> what your impressions of Invisible Sun are based on secondhand, oh, uh, yeah. sec- secondhand receiving of that information from me. <laughs> oh, man. So I don't know where this came from, but one day Jason just said, oh, hey, here's something I'm doing. And he showed me this work that he clearly put a lot of thought and time into. And I'd never heard of Invisible Sun. I didn't know what this was. So I said, when did you become involved with the occult? (laughs) I I looked into this a little bit more, apparently, and I'm sorry, I have not been following this too much. But yeah, apparently, you've still been very actively involved in this (laughs) getting further. You don't don't realize this, Adam, but you are actually sitting right now in the city of Saturine within Indigo, within Invisible Sun. And uh, you, you haven't realized that. But that is, in fact, the whole theme of this podcast is that it's about modern about, about, about modern storytelling, but it's aesthetically flavored. It's as if I came to you and said, oh, I've got a podcast. You don't have to know about Star Wars or the universe. We're talking about stuff. But like aesthetically, it's set in the most likely cantina, right? It's that. But we're in a bar in, yeah. in Invisible Fun yeah. right now. So you have not quite yet escaped from shadow into the true light of indigo, <laughs> but it's OK. Uh, you, you also drink water. So I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. Well, that means that Botland exists in Invisible Sun. Whoa! <laughs> so I, it's a cooler, it's a cooler world than I thought. Then, <laughs> no, I should, I should go look for it into this. <laughs> for a contest, the thing that I had been working on that there's an app for Invisible Sun, which now exists. It has now come out, and it's a web app provided by Monte Cook Games. But at the time, there were rumors the app was coming, but there was not, in fact, an app. And so I put together a, a UI prototype of like, if I were going to build an app, how would I do it? But it was super, super creepy and steeped in in all the weird, creepy artwork and stuff from it. So out of context, dropping that uh, in Adam's inbox must <laughs> might might have might have might have caused any normal human some concern. So thank you guys for listening out there in the world. I really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks for your time, Adam. Bye-bye. Bye. (laughs) I'm excited to talk to you tonight about Botland's art. Art directing this game was great. Bear with me for a moment, but I can't not brag to you about the six artists I had on hand for the project. Principal artists first. You'll hear a lot more tonight from Kendra, But just in case it's not clear from the interview, she was responsible for the design of all the weapons and projectiles in the game, as well as a lot of the creature design, and her fingerprints are all over it. Alec Kozak is a graphic novelist, cosmonaut on DeviantArt, K-O-Z-M-A-N-A-U-T. He really dialed in the lighthearted tone of Botland, both in the concept art and in production, and designed many of the bots. He brings a really infectious joy to his creations, and I loved working with him. You can find Ryan Levin at ryanlevin.com, R-Y-A-N-N-E-L-E-V-I-N. Ryan not only illustrated huge swaths of Botland, as we know it, lots of bots and all the background artwork, but she was the sole animator and effects artist for the game. So if you giggle, as I do, every time you see that adorably destructive mushroom cloud, you've got Ryan to thank. Botland feels so much like Botland because of her lovely motion work. I had some great supporting artists as well. Alex Pelaire, A-L-E-X-P-E-L-A-Y-R-E dot com, is a phenomenal illustrator and concept artist, with many games you've actually heard of under his belt. Alex was crucial to the early concept work on the game, especially surrounding the mechanics of how all the bots would end up fitting together. He is a consummate professional. 
Oh, he also drafted the logo according to my instruction, and he nailed it. Could not have been more pleased. Mike Malbra is an author and illustrator who, among other things, drafts lovely children's books, which you need. His concept illustrations for Botland were gold, and now I really just want a fully illustrated Botland book for Emma's shelf. Mike is also an old friend, and one of the few humans for whom I've both GM'd and sat under his GM ship. We were Eberron buddies back in the day. See his work at mikemalbra.com, M-A-L-B-R-O-U-G-H. Last but not least, I was so happy to have Brooklyn Holland join us to help design bots. Botland was her first professional digital illustration gig, and I can tell you she's got a long and illustrious career ahead of her. So, if you're looking for artists, I could not speak more highly about any of these folks. I was so fortunate to get this stable of illustrators together for this project. Serious dream team. Now, let's dig in and hear more about the project from Kendra. Kendra Inahosa, hello, and welcome to The Secret Seller. Hi. Hi. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> <laughs> What's up? What's going on? I'm really excited to have you here because you have been a friend of mine and also a coworker and also now an artist on several projects. And I love art directing and I love working with you as an art director. So I'm excited to talk a bit about your illustration and specifically your work on Botland. Yeah, cool. I am honored that you count me as a friend. <laughs> <laughs> it is all true. Well, first, tell us a bit about you. What, what kinds of things do you like to create? I'm a graphic designer is my day job, but I'm mostly an illustrator outside of that. I love character design, so this Botland project was really awesome for that. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of your influences, artists or art styles or media that you really love? It was animation and probably Disney movies specifically that got me drawing as a kid, and that kind of stuck with me. Then that expanded to like video games. Those are pretty much the two like biggest influences on what I do. Shane, what video games do you love? Like the, you know, the really nerdy stuff. Anything with like a really strong like world building, like fantasy stuff, um, Final Fantasy, World of Warcraft, um, anything like that, bright and colorful and very much not based in real life. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm going to interrupt and tell everyone right now that you should go take a look at Kendra's portfolio. She's got some great work showing there, including some character design, which we'll talk about in a minute. Where can people find you? Thanks. It is just my full name. So K-E-N-D-R-A-H-I-N-O-J-O-S-A.com. Rad. Folks from this show may be familiar with some of your work for The Truth Bleeds at Twilight. Uh, you, without oh, yeah. knowing quite what an invisible sun even is got plunged into this project where all sorts of strange unknown internet people started coming to you asking you to design characters for them <laughs> what was that like yeah that was awesome i had no idea what i was doing that might have been for the best um <laughs> because i i kind of i could come at like all these different character designs from people describing like their characters that were really important to them in this game and i had no idea what the game was Kind of a better idea now but it was just super cool to be able to do that for you and for them and just kind of be part of that world even though i'm kind of outside of it and you had some exposure to tabletop role playing prior to that yeah a little bit yeah i've, I've never actually played a tabletop game sure what shows did you watch though well okay so the, the main thing is i listened to a, a podcast called the adventure zone 
Yeah. Yeah. And that was like, okay, I've never played Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm listening to these three dudes play it. And then it just kind of like sucked me in. It was like really cool. That's pretty cool. So I kind of like have a rough understanding of how they work just through stuff like that. What was your initial impression of listening to Adventure Zone and getting drawn into it versus maybe what you thought a tabletop role playing game was before listening? Um, really, tabletop games were something that I avoided in high school because like the cool kids didn't play those. And then I just never really knew anyone who played them. But then after playing so many RPG like video games, after listening to the Adventure Zone, it's like, okay, this is just Warcraft on paper. I get this. This is cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So there are many people who can draw, but when you talk about character design, you're very good at reading between the lines of a description of a character or a personality trait or some weird abstract thing that someone brings you, and then finding a way to show that in your artwork and really fill in the blanks. I always felt like when I would talk with you about characters, when I would see the final thing on paper, I'd be like, not only is that in the direction of what I was envisioning, but now I know my own character better having seen it on this page than I did even before I came to you, which is really wonderful and remarkable. What is that process like for you when you take that kind of initial description and kind of start formulating a character in your mind? Man, that's like so many compliments. That's so awesome to like know that I was really kind of nailing it that well. I piled them all up at once because <laughs> if I like peppered them in occasionally, you would argue with me about them. So I just thought I would like shock and awe, you know? Oh, that works. <laughs> um, okay. So as far as like interpreting people's descriptions of their characters, I feel like having such a strong background in, I guess, just appreciating animation. I haven't done a lot of it myself. Gave me a really strong basis for being able to give expression to things without dialogue, without words, right? Like, so it's, it's kind of acting, mm. but on paper. Totally. Um, and so I feel like I can pull a lot of description that people give me when they're not necessarily visual people and kind of pull that into just kind of a feeling and emotion. But you guys pretty much all let me run wild with stuff like clothing and colors and all that kind of stuff. So that was, that was fun. But I'm glad that me just kind of running with things turned out nicely for everyone. It did. And it's a good fit with Invisible Sun because things really can truly run wild in Invisible Sun. So that's really nice. Yeah. So do you see when you're kind of envisioning in your head who this character is and how you're going to compose this particular shot, you know, this still frame of an animation, are you seeing sort of more going on in your head than the one frame that you kind of end up settling on? Oh, for sure. I mean, especially like if I'm personally more vested in who the character is, they kind of become my character, <laughs> me internally, right? Rad. So like there were a few instances where it was tough to just give you guys one image. I wanted to draw out <laughs> sketches and poses and different situations, you know? So that was really cool for me. And I tend to be someone who, even though I really like character design, story ideas don't come very easily to me. Mm -hmm. So you guys kind of fed me that part. And it was really cool to have that as just something to like run with. So yeah, I was thinking about these characters long after I was after I finished the portraits for you guys, and especially because I wasn't really part of the game. I didn't have any preconceived notion of who they were or who, like the people playing them were sure. right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they just felt like they were mine. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I would love to do 
more with them, of course. Oh, that's pretty great. So, you know, we have no favorite children, but, uh, you know, tell, tell me about one of the portraits, like one of the characters that you kind of particularly became fond of as you were working on drawing the portrait. And I'll go ahead and show that illustration as you're talking about it. Okay. Um, who are the two? One of them was like rainbow and one was like gremlin. Bismuth and Curio. Yes. Yeah. They're okay. Well, those people, even though I've never really talked to them, like I follow them on Twitter and they follow me and they just seem super cool in general. I will absolutely vouch for the fact that they are both super cool in general. Yeah. So they seem awesome and their character designs were awesome and the descriptions they gave me were awesome. And they were just really, really fun to do. And like that dynamic that I at least got a sense of through talking to them a little bit on Slack about the project, like it just, it was really fun. Like those, those are my favorites if I have any favorites. Nice. For sure. Tell me a little bit about the artistic thought that went into Bismuth's skin and Curio's eyes. Oh yeah. Well, the request was for her to have kind of like this rainbow shimmer like the colors that are in bismuth like the metal and so that was really fun and a little bit challenging to pull off without looking really garish and just drawing someone who is legit rainbow head to toe Um, (laughs) yeah that's a that's a lot (laughs) yeah it it was it was a lot it it could could go very badly (laughs) right so that was really fun and it was really fun to reference like the colors that are in bismuth and just apply them like just barely just a little bit on spots of like her face where like the light would hit and make them blend in at least I think gracefully ish into the rest of her skin. (laughs) So that was really cool. And the eyes on Curio, they were just described as being kind of like unnaturally large for a human, I think. So I just got this kind of like, I don't know, this gremlin vibe, this like (laughs) troublemaker, right? Yes. Um, (laughs) This like, creature who they were like curiosity personified right i think that's accurate yeah yeah so that was just really fun to just kind of make the eyes like not so big that they were like super intense but just big enough that they were just off and had this glint of troublemaking in them not evil but gremlin definite mischief top to bottom yeah (laughs) well tell me a bit about Botland, mm-hmm. you know, Botland is interesting because, you know, the bots are not characters in the quite the same way. They don't have backstories necessarily. So as a little background, you know, every bot has a modular head and torso and foot, and they can all be mixed and matched in infinite combinations as players make their own bots and kind of customize their bot armies. I think one of my favorite aspects of the whole project was kind of coming up with a system by which as illustrators, you had specific constraints to work in where you kind of needed to push the limits as much as you could, but within the constraints they gave you in terms of dimensions and proportion and positions so that all these pieces could all fit together and not break the game by becoming, for instance, too large when you combined several large pieces together or too small if you combined all the small pieces together. What was that process like, that sort of It was a very technically constrained process of character creation. How's that different from other projects you've worked on? Um, Well, I feel like I learned a lot from that, really. And I feel like we kind of figured it out together at the beginning. Definitely. And I feel like throughout the whole process, I got better at just kind of seeing what I could get away with, just trying to push it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it it was tough to get used to, but it kind of made me approach everything from like a different direction. 
when I did the first test or whatever, I kind of just thought of it as one whole character, but going forward, it really changes like your design decisions, knowing that, okay, I have X amount of space for this leg, but if I make it extend too far into the space, it's going to cut off something else and somebody else's design and so on. And then also trying to think like, okay, I'm like way out there with this character design, but somebody else is doing a robot that looks like a robot. So like, how is that going to work? So yeah, just the technical aspect of it. It was really interesting putting together action figure parts after a while. Like, I think we made it work pretty smoothly. Yeah, I really do too. I'll put a link in the show notes, but there's a teaser video that's currently at bot.land that you can see. And there's a moment in the middle where a bunch of randomly generated bots just kind of stream by on the screen so you can start to see the combinations but they all work and they all have a really pretty quirky unified kind of fun sense i'm just really pleased with how it all how it all came together it's really nice yeah it's crazy that it did come together that smoothly i mean even though some some of the combinations are like disasters in like the best way yeah that's exactly correct (laughs) but like yeah it was it was cool because like i didn't see everything that everyone was doing all the time that like all of our art styles and all of our ideas just that kind of worked in the end was there any particular point of frustration in the project and you can be you can be honest (laughs) i think just in the very beginning when we were trying to set up a template and then you after i was stumbling through some of it you made this foolproof grid (laughs) <laughs> that was perfect to work off of for the rest of like the project and finding a brush and a line style that we're going to work for everybody that everybody always used forever. Yeah. But once we did that, and I think I had to redesign a couple of them, re-ink a few of them. We yep. got that down. Yeah. yeah. The process of co-creation among all of us, because we were all kind of involved in that early phase, there was the concepting phase first that was just wild, wide open, no structure. What is this world going to look like? And what is the personality of these bots and how how friendly or, or aggressive or whatever is this world going to, how's it going to feel? And then once we kind of settled that, it was really interesting to go into that phase of more specifically plan out ideas for bots and kind of figure out how they could look and iterate. But yeah, that process of then taking all those ideas and working them into a structure that really was sustainable and could kind of scale infinitely and work across the whole team was probably the most challenging part of it for me as well. But it was so satisfying. I remember some of the very first moments when we had successful tests of wildly disparate bot parts randomly being generated in Adam's art tool and joining together. I was just giddy. I was just like, oh my God. I was, I hit refresh like 600 times that night, just watching bots roll across the screen. It was so satisfying. So I really enjoyed that. (laughs) Yeah, it was awesome. And it was a relief that I didn't do anything like too wacky that didn't work with anybody else's stuff. Yeah, it was really a a testament to the system that we all came up with and everyone's skill in adhering to it. But also the bots that came out of the system do not all feel like little snowmen with three parts stacked on top of each other that all like sort of feel the same. We worked really hard on making the silhouettes unique and kind of the, the ways and positions in which the parts join unique. And that really paid off in the end. It's really good. Yeah. It was a super fun project. In the art direction, we were working on kind of complete sets as you buy salvage packs and earn more cosmetics. You can kind of grow your library of how custom you can make your bots look. You know, there were half a dozen artists that I got to work with on the project, which was really great. And in most cases, one artist would be responsible for a whole family. So 
although we did work to unify our styles across the artists, of course, there's differences in kind of personality and style, and one family would be all the work of one person's hand. Eh, what's, a, what's a favorite bot family that comes to mind immediately? Man, I've been working on these for so long. Um, <laughs> it has been a long time, Kendra. <laughs> it's, it's a long time. Like, oh, the elemental ones. Those are really cool. Ooh, yeah. So we yeah. had um, Geodebot, right? It was like a rock. That was like the first test. It was. It was one of the very yeah. first tests that you did. And Quetzalbot was another, not from the not yeah. from the elemental family, but that was another very early test that you did that always was one of my favorites throughout the whole process. <laughs> oh, cool. So with the elemental bots, I was trying to remember them. There's Geodebot. There's Airbot with the little vacuum tubes. Mm -hmm. The water one was like this glass container of water so that I could pull off some like translucent effects with the water inside it. Oh, that's right. And it was, gosh, I think it's on wheels and it has like a fish fin tail and like three <laughs> like mechanical like heads coming off of it with like fish faces on them. That one was cool. And then we had fire. Yeah, the fire one was this, I envisioned it being all made out of metal. So it's like very angular. It's got like a lion's head with like these glowing like orange yellow eyes and the the inside of his torso was a forge with like glowing coals and like vents and stuff on it and like chains. So that one was really fun too. So do you have anything else that you are working on now that you can tell us about? I mean, as far as graphic design, like I'm working at an agency now, so a lot of variety, a lot of hard work. How's agency life? Busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's really busy all the time. And I'm never sure what I can talk about or not. Yeah, of course. Or, you know, through the pipeline. But sure. Yeah, we do some big stuff for like big companies. It's pretty cool. That's great. Um, yeah. I always loved doing agency work just because every day is different. You never quite know what's going to cross yeah. your desk. You have to get close to the sort of products or projects that you're doing design work for. And you end up learning a lot about a lot of really interesting things that maybe you wouldn't have come across in your own path, which I always thought was really cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Man, it feels like a million years ago that I worked with you at NAU, but it was <laughs> it, really cool. It was, it was a million years ago, Kendra. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, if people want to uh, see any more of your work, I know you gave your portfolio earlier, KendraHinoosa.com. Yep. Yeah. Uh, anything else people should know about how to how to, how to get a hold of you, how to hire you for amazing illustrations? I have an email form on there, um, or you can contact me through Twitter and I might see it. I would love to be more active on social media, but I just haven't had the time lately. Um, but I will definitely see it if you send me an email through my website. Perfect. Thank you again for your time and your brilliant work. And I look forward to uh, working with you again on something soon. Oh, thank you, Jason. It was good to talk to you. You too. Have a good night. I'm so grateful to Adam for trusting me with his project, and I'm so excited to watch it leave beta later this year. Do let me know if you need art direction, experience or interface design, or consulting work for your gaming or story-related project. Or if you'd like to advertise on this podcast, you can write me at meet.me at zeros.bar or DM me at underscore secret seller underscore on Twitter. Thank you again, dear listeners, for your time tonight such a valuable gift. And my thanks once again to Gamers Giving for sponsoring this episode. Join their community or contribute in any way you can 
at facebook.com slash gamersgiving. If you have a chance tonight, I highly recommend going for a walk under the invisible light of tonight's new moon. The stars shine brightest in the darkness. Audio design for The Secret Cellar is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and The Secret Cellar are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from shadow. A lot has happened since then. Oh, hey, I forgot to lock my door. Just a moment. Yeah, sure. Hey, Emma. Hey, kiddo, what's going on? Do you want to say hi to Adam? You can't see him, but he's inside the microphone here. Hi, Emma. Hey. Hi. What are you doing? Are you having lunch with Mama? Yeah. What are you eating? I'm eating donut. <laughs> donuts. Donuts? Donuts. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a microphone, Emma. The microphone is what you talk into, and that's how Adam hears us. And you can hear me, Emma. Yeah. Look, you're moving around. Yeah, yeah, you're moving the microphone around. Adam, you are upside down currently inside the microphone. How do you feel? I feel very disoriented. <laughs> Hello, I'm Emma. Hi, Emma. This is, this is like I'm talking to an AI almost. <laughs> I know it's a real intelligence, but seeing Hello, I'm Emma is like the Hello World of programming language. Hey, Emma, let me, let me go take you back to my mind. Um, I'm going to finish my conversation with Adam, and then we'll come have more lunch together. What do you think? No good. N- no good? What do you want? Or give us a gift, Julia. You want to say, say hi a little bit? How about this? Why don't you tell Adam a story about the animals we saw yesterday? Yeah. And then we'll go take you back to lunch. What kind of animals did you see? Um, giraffe. A giraffe. What else did you see? Um, a zebra. A zebra. Wow. Where did you go, Emma? I'm going in a bus. On a bus? You're you're absolutely right about all these facts. Uh, <laughs> did you did you get to feed the zebra? I mean the giraffe. Yes. What? How did you do that? I do. I give some leaves. Yeah, you gave him some leaves. Yeah. Wow. Emma, do you want to go have some cacao with Mama? No, I'm going to drive the bicycle. Drive the bicycle? You can go drive the bicycle. Yeah, no, it's like... Here, let me, I'm going to take this back. Say bye-bye to Adam. Bye-bye, Adam. Bye, Emma.